Hello, I'm Christopher Kazan, and this is Ireland's Edge. On today's episode, this is America. How do we make sense of everything that's been happening across the Atlantic? It has been an extraordinary few years in American news. The surprise election of Donald Trump eventually gave way to his impeachment, his defeat, and then to the unprecedented violent assault on the US Capitol. Mass shootings and police brutality have prompted sustained protests against racial injustice. Heat waves, wildfires and floods have highlighted the catastrophic impact of climate change. And the worst pandemic in over a century has led to millions of American deaths. All of this amidst a toxic cultural and political divide that seems to grow only wider. So what hope for the Union? Covering it all has been The Guardian's US editor, John Mulholland. In Dingle, he spoke with Ireland's Edge curator, Maureen Keller. John, it is a pleasure to have you back here. Thank you for being with us. You were last year four years ago. At that stage, you were four months into your position at Guardian USA. We were about the same time through the Trump presidency as we are now with the Biden presidency. As Chris said, it has been a tumultuous few years. Your talk at Ireland's Edge foreshadowed very prophetically a lot of what we have since come to live. At this point now in 2021, from this vantage point, what are your reflections? Four years on, um, well, America has endured at three years of a Trump, three more years of a Trump presidency. And I would say that the legacy of that not least in the violent denouement of the riot on January the 6th, is that my sense is that America is a country that's even less at ease with itself. It feels even more so than four years ago. It feels angrier. It feels more divided. Uh, It feels less settled. It feels less bound by common values and common issues to address. And that's not to freight all of that responsibility on four years of a Trump presidency, because I think those divisions were becoming apparent long before he took office and were possibly in part uh, responsible for him coming to office. But there is no doubt that he fanned those flames and it was one of the ugliest, most dishonest, most divisive presidencies in Republican history. And it has left a terrible legacy, I would say. Um, But also within those four years since I was last here, uh, you know, one of the most significant events in American public life took place, which was the killing of George Floyd. And it's difficult to underestimate the impact that that has had at least in starting a conversation about race and racial inequality in America. And that continues to impact public life and impact corporations and certainly news organizations like The Guardian, where we committed 18 months ago to set about to try and completely retool and re-kit our own organization. So in short, I would say It's not a country that seems uh, any happier than it was four years ago. And I think the roadmap ahead is is, uh, challenging. 
And as you talked about there, the retooling, the rekitting of your own organization, it appears to me that there is a number of themes in the journalism that Guardian USA has chosen to focus on in particular. The question of race intersects with practically every one of them. But it seems to me that um, one of the key themes that you have been pursuing is the voting rights and the structuring, the institutional structuring of democracy. In some senses, the dismantling as opposed to the structuring. Mm. What has really struck you about that? Mm. Yeah, and I talked to uh, my staff a lot about issues like how uh, how unequal the Senate is. I talk a lot about the Supreme Court. Um, and sometimes I feel as though people are less interested in these issues because they seem procedural. But institutions like the Supreme Court and the Senate are at the very heart of the roadblocks to progress in America. And it's really imperative that the country starts a conversation about how they can try and rebuild the fundamentals of American democracy. And without challenging things like the Senate, which we can talk about in a little while, I don't think that will happen. In terms of voting rights, I began to get interested in voting rights uh, about eight years ago when the Supreme Court gutted the 1965 Voting Rights Act. And what they did was they said that states no longer had to have legislation that pertained to voting rights passed at a federal level. So the Supreme Court absented the federal government from needing to oversee voting rights legislation in individual states. That allowed individual states to introduce the most wild and extreme forms of restricting the vote, almost always to people of color and marginalized communities. And I remember reading about this, and there wasn't that much to read, but I remember sitting in London before I was ever uh, entertaining the thought of being sent to America and thinking, how can this be happening in plain sight yeah. in legislatures across the country in the place that calls itself the so-called leader of the free world? I mean, I was just astonished. And so when I got to America, one of the first things I did was to say, we are going to do a significant amount of ongoing reporting, not incidental and incremental pieces. Yeah. We put together a team we called it the fight to vote. And we started that in 2018, 2019, and in many ways prefigured the fights that would take place, particularly around Trump and the last election. And it's fundamental because if you restrict people from voting, you will restrict their voice and their issues and their challenges from being discussed and debated and represented. and. You know, the, I talked about the legacy of the uh, Trump president uh, presidency and particularly the way that he left, which was to cast doubt yeah. on the election and to assert that the election result was fraudulent and that that fraudulence had been built into the voting system. Yeah. And what that allowed was that remarkably, having already introduced extreme voting rights restrictions over the previous five years, after the last election, just gone, something like 300 bills have been introduced to further restrict voting rights in those states 
where marginalized uh, communities and people of color have traditionally been at the receiving end of restrictions such as, you know, reducing the number of polling stations in yeah. communities, uh, re- heightening the level of ID that you need to make a vote. Um, and so that has happened in places like Georgia and Texas and Florida, Ohio, just in the last six months. So as an outsider, you know, I I wanted to I wanted us to do work around uh, issues that were impacting communities, but I really wanted to draw attention to the foundations Chanel's. and the systems and the structures that allow those inequalities to continue. And the, the, the naked uh, way in which states across the country blatantly restrict the right to vote for mostly marginalized communities you know, is abhorrent. Another abhorrence, um, which again, I followed for a period, but if we follow that into uh, the environmental injustice um, and how that is becoming another, how, how that ties into what we will see and are seeing across climate injustice, your cancer town um program in Louisiana, it showed at another level, perhaps informed slightly by the outsider's view as well, this level of environmental crime Mm. and uh, living conditions Mm. that are generally ignored through not, you know, but with but, but very limited view. Mm. Um, what, what has that shown you about the structuring of power and mm. influence across? Many of those are company towns, the type of towns that you have done mm. uh, groundwater reporting on mm. other forms of environmental pollution. You have been very embedded within those communities. Mm. But again, there has been much to report on there. Yes, I mean, you mentioned Cancer Town. And again, I do think that was uh, provoked by, again, a kind of an outsider's view. And I became aware of a town that we called Cancer Town, and we only called it that in dialogue with the residents of Reserve, Louisiana, which is a town of about 4,000 people, um, majority black town. It's a town where your risk of cancer is 50 times higher than any other town in America. It's the site of a Denka petrochemical plant, which emits a carcinogen, or perhaps I should say a likely carcinogen for, um, for legal reasons. Uh, the Environmental Protection Agency uh, ought to be governing those emissions, but they, Denka have consistently Uh, had emissions over and above the safe level that the EPA allow. And I started reading about this and thought, you know, how can it be in America, again, that there can be a small community where the risk of cancer is 50 times higher than uh, than any other town in America? And nothing happens. Denke just went on polluting. Uh, The carcinogen keeps being emitted. People keep dying. Nothing happens. One of Biden's 
principal chief aides in his cabinet is Cedric Richmond, a senator for Louisiana, a Democrat, had never met the campaigners, had never shown any interest in meeting the campaigners. He is somebody who benefits from petrochemical funding. And so that alliance between politics and corporatism in America is built into the very structure. And we decided uh, not to go there for two weeks and do a piece and then take off. We decided we would report there for a year and we've continued to do that. We had public events there. Um, we asked Cedric Richmond to meet the campaigners. Uh, we have continued to report two and a half years later. And two weeks ago, Biden's pick for the Environmental Protection Agency, Michael Regan, an African-American, went on a environmental justice tour of southern states, uh, Florida, Louisiana, and Texas. And he stopped in Reserve, Louisiana, and he met all the campaigners that we had been writing about. Now, that's not solely the work of The Guardian. Other people have written about it. But I, I hope that our sustained coverage to say, you know, this is just not right. Uh, one of the impacts of our reporting is that the, the closest the closest place to that plant was a junior school. Now, the executives of Denkis certainly didn't send their pupils to that school. Yeah. And it's an outrage. And that school has been moved as a result of some of our reporting. The governor has instituted the first ever review of a petrochemical plant in Louisiana. But, you know, for Reserve Louisiana, there are hundreds of other communities. And what we were saying is, this is emblematic Attic. of a built-in systematic abuse and a marginalization of people who have no leverage on power. And it took Cedric Richmond, you know, two years for him to even respond to uh, our requests for an interview, which he refused. But we at least were able to do a piece highlighting yeah. his lack of engagement. He did subsequently meet those people. And... There are communities like that all across the states. As you say, like the emblematic nature of it, but even if it comes down to something as basic as sanitation and clean water, that's been another. We've done, yeah. I, I mean, again, yeah, I mean, we've done a lot on that. And again, I think, you know, as an outsider, you read about somewhere like Lowndes County in Alabama, where residents of the again, majority black town, are suffering from hookworm, which is a disease most usually associated with uh, so-called less developed nations which don't have access to sanitation. We first covered that story four years ago because, again, uh, at the heart of America were people who were having raw sewage come through their house, come through their gardens, uh, nobody was showing any interest in trying to address these fundamental issues. Uh, Christine Flowers, who's a you know magnificent campaigner, started drawing attention to it. We wrote about it. And eventually there was a movement. There was a UN panel in Geneva, which our journalist uh, moderated. And four years later, Biden appointed Christine Flowers to an environmental justice uh, kind of team that he was building up. But again, there are multiple examples of that. Uh, only eight weeks ago, we did a story about Benton Harbor in Michigan. Michigan, of course, is the site of uh, the home of Flint, 
which we have read a lot about. Well, residents of Benton Harbour, majority black town, had higher incidences of lead poisoning in their water than Flint. It was not being reported. They've had bottled water trucked in for the last three years. It's close to a majority white town who have fine water. Uh, we did a piece on that six or eight weeks ago. And, and this doesn't always happen, but within seven or eight days, MSNBC covered it, credited The Guardian. I was sitting at home one night because I have a sad life watching CBS Evening News. A four-minute report on Benton Harbor came on. The Washington Post did a leader article. And the state of Michigan, three weeks later, said they would replace all the lead poisoned pipes within 18 months. But, you know, it shouldn't take... It shouldn't take anyone, it shouldn't take the Guardian, it shouldn't take anyone to have to alert state representatives in Michigan to what is ultimately a race issue. These things are happening and being visited on communities of color all of the time in a way that white communities uh, do not suffer in this way. So, you know, wherever you look, race intersects with all of these issues that we end up talking about, whether it's voting rights, whether it's the way in which the Senate overrepresents low population white states and underrepresents multicultural uh, large states like California, New York, Florida. Um, and will continue to do so at an increasing impact. Yeah, and again, you know... <laughs> You can address issues like Benton Harbor and, and something good happens sometimes, and you can report on Reserve Louisiana. Yeah. But unless you address these foundational inequalities that drive those inequities, and the Senate is at the heart of those. I mean, the Senate, you know, Wyoming, population 600,000, has two senators. California, population 40 million, has two senators. Uh, that kind of inegalitarian approach to misrepresentation was baked into the Senate from the start. And as the country gets more diverse, it becomes even less representative because yeah. that demographic diversity is not spread evenly across the country. Uh, and so is the Senate representing Americans or states? There are 50 Democrats and 50 Republicans in the Senate. The 50 Democrats represent 40 million more Americans. I mean, you know, again, I say to myself all the time, like, please be interested in this, because unless you address those foundational inequalities, it's very difficult to repair the other inequalities downstream. And John, you are also, you and your team, you're reporting on a massive wave of activism, which, and a huge energy focused on these and other issues. What yeah. has struck you about what you're seeing in those movements? Yeah, and look, I think it's it's easy and you feel it when you come back to the UK where people refer to the US as a, a you know, irredeemable basket case that's, you know, going to hell in a handcart. Um, and obviously... Says the UK. Well, the UK and Ireland. <laughs> and, 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 you know, the, the Trump presidency did much to kind of bake in that narrative. And so it, you do have to stand back and look at those initiatives and activism and campaigns. Cities? Cities, mayors across America are 
introducing climate initiatives that fly in the face of, uh, certainly flew in the face of what Trump was attempting to do. But even at, at a very basic level, 150 million Americans voted in the last election. And 7 million more Americans voted for Biden. Now, the downside is that 71 million had a good look at the ugliest, most divisive, most rancorous president in history and still voted for him. But 7 million more Americans chose a moderate, moral conviction politician. Yeah. Um, and there are, is an amazing work being done like by people like Stacey Abrams and the Fair Fight campaign to get the vote out, which had a seismic impact in terms of those two Senate yeah. runoff elections in Georgia. Two weeks ago, her political action committee raised uh, $1.4 million to erase the medical debt of 100,000 of the poorest people in Georgia. There's huge activism to try and counter the swathe of restrictive uh, reproductive rights access bills in America. So, you know, I know it's easy to to paint a dystopian picture of America, but everywhere there are people organizing and committed to a, a different America. Let's uh, move back to the UK for a moment. Before you left, one of the big stories of your final year at The Observer was the Cambridge Analytica story. And we have had Carol Cadwallader here. As you look at that story now coming up on five years on and that and the, the, the reporting of which all of that was a part, what strikes you now as the enduring importance or of that story. Yeah. Well, let's just remind people that Cambridge Analytica was a company founded by Robert Mercer, a right-wing or possibly even far right-wing donor. Uh, On the board was Steve Bannon, one of the most extreme Trump acolytes. Um, And what happened was they harvested data that was not being protected by Facebook and they harvested it for political ends. I think five years ago, that was at the very start of uh, a, a, a sense that Facebook and platforms were not protecting data, were running roughshod over other um, corporate interests in terms of the, uh, you know, the enormity of their positions in the market and the impact on journalism is just one of those. And I think five years ago, the shine was just about to come off Facebook and the platforms. And it was at the, I think it was, an, well, it was, it had huge impact globally. And it set in train, I think it did set in train, a series of events that has meant that Facebook, uh, Google, Amazon have all since been, at least to some extent, called to account. They've now had three or four sessions in front of Congress in in the US, whether that's to do with their inability to curtail uh, misinformation or the way in which they uh, distort the so-called free market. So, you know, I, I think there was a period five years ago where big tech wasn't in the same dystopian place that it is now. And, and I think Cambridge Analytica was at the start of that. So, I, you know, I don't think we quite recognized how big and how important a story it was because ultimately it was about safe, safeguards and safeguarding data, which 
Facebook didn't do. And they've continued to be negligent in all kinds of corporate ways, whether that's failing to curtail misinformation, not just in the States, but in Myanmar, in India, in Brazil, with, you know, horrific consequences. Some devastating consequences. John, um, you won't always be editor of Guardian USA. You won't be sitting in that seat. You use the words being sent there. You lived much of your life in the UK after you left Ireland. What do you think is the ongoing role which America will play in your own life? Um, I mean, uh, yeah, you're, you're right. I'm, I'm, just, I'm just leasing the Guardian editor role in the US and I will step away at some point. And, you know, I won't be sad to step away because it is a grueling position if you take seriously the role of an organization like The Guardian, where we are not large enough to cover the waterfront. We can't chase commodity news that all other organizations are doing. And so you decide to set out your stall and you pick targets where you uh, invest time and energy and you invest emotion as well. And, you know, if, if things like inequality and racial injustice and the erosion of democratic norms, if they bother you, it does have a kind of personal impact on you. And all of those things are rife in the States. And so certainly there will come a point where I will step away from that role professionally. Uh, quite what role America plays in my life after that, we will have to wait and see. Well, we hope you'll be back and tell us and we hope this weekend will be one of restoration and, uh, I I'm wouldn't sure quite it, say respite, but let's just say restoration. Well, it, it couldn't, happen in a, <laughs> couldn't happen in a better place. Thank you, John. Thanks, Mark. Thank you so much to John Mulholland for joining Warren Keller in Tinkle. On our next episode, I speak with the dairy writer Seamus O'Reilly about memory, family and his award-winning childhood memoir, Did You Hear Mammy Died? I was three weeks shy of my sixth birthday where I wasn't kept track of and I was nowhere to be found and then I was discovered camped out in front of the front door as dozens and dozens of tearful mourners were coming in and ding dong, first thing they would see is me, three feet tall, bright red hair, big smile on my face, little suit, saying, did you hear mommy died? That's obviously a funny story, but it's also quite a sad story. To make sure that you don't miss that or any of our future episodes, subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts. This has been a South Wind Blows production, and I'm Christopher Cassan. Thank you for joining us, and I look forward to your company next time on Ireland's Edge. <laughs>